Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a glass of Moscato. What are you drinking, Del? I'm having a rum and Pepsi, and on this week's episode, we are looking at a man who inspired countless horror and thriller movie villains, including Norman Bates in Psycho, Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. The man had a sick and twisted view of other people and used others to live out his most depraved fantasy. While known as the Butcher of Plainsville and the Plainsville Ghoul, Ed Gein tormented his town and his crimes still stand out for their depravity. Edward Theodore Gein was born on August 27th 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to George and Augusta Gein. He was the youngest of two boys in a deeply religious Lutheran household. His older brother was Harry. Augusta would frequently preach about the immorality of the world, the evils of drinking, and her belief that all women were naturally promiscuous and the instrument of the devil. She, of course, excluded herself from this description of women. Every afternoon, she read to her son from the Old Testament and the Book of Revelations in the New Testament about death, murder, and retribution. The love she had for her children was not extended to her husband. She hated him because he was too drunk to keep a job. Eventually, the family moved to an isolated farm in Plainsville, Wisconsin, which became their permanent residence. This isolation caused Augusta to treat outsiders as hostile invaders, and she worked hard to make sure her sons were not corrupted by them. Eventually, the only time that Ed would be able to leave the farm was to go to school. Ed was described as shy, with strange mannerisms by classmates and teachers. He would often laugh out loud randomly, like he was laughing at his own jokes. Even though he was at school, Augusta was still in control over him, including punishing Ed whenever he tried to make friends. This led to poor social development, with some academic achievement in solitary subjects such as reading. Tragedy struck the family on April 1st, 1940, when Ed fathered George died of alcohol-related heart failure. Henry and Ed had to start working small jobs around town to help earn money for the family. They were reliable workers who were trusted by the residents, even babysitting for neighbors. Ed liked babysitting and was able to relate to the children more than adults. Growing older and having fallen in love with a divorced mother of two, Henry planned to move in with her and start a life together. His move was delayed by his worry that his brother was too attached to their mother. When Henry spoke ill of their mother, Ed was hurt and responded poorly. On May 16, 1944, Ed was burning vegetation on the property. He could not control it and a fire department was called in to control the fire. At the end of the day, the fire was gone, and so was Henry. They started a search party, and unfortunately, Henry's body was found lying face down dead. He had been dead for some time, and since there were no burns, they suspected he died from heart failure. 
biographer Harold Trissenter later reported that Henry had bruises on his head. Despite this, the police did not suspect foul play, and the county coroner listed the death as asphyxiation. The authorities accepted that it was an accident, and no autopsy was performed. It was later suggested that this was a Cain and Abel situation, heavily implying Ed was responsible for Henry's death. After the deaths of George and Henry, it was just Ed and Augusta. Augusta suffered a stroke shortly after Henry had died, and Ed dedicated himself to helping her. Augusta died on December 19, 1945, and this devastated Ed. Author Harold stated he had, quote, lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world, end quote. Ed stayed on the farm and worked odd jobs to support himself. He preserved his mother's memory by boarding up the rooms in the house she used, including the upstairs, downstairs parlor, and living room. This living room was pristine while the other rooms fell into despair. Ed also put up some unsettling reading material, including adventure stories focused on cannibals and Nazi atrocities. On November 16, 1957, Bernice Warden went missing. She was the owner of the hardware store, and her store's truck was seen being driven out of the rear of the building around 9.30 a.m. The store did not have many customers that day, which many assumed was due to the deer hunting season. Bernice's son was Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden. He went to the store around 5 p.m. and found the cash register open with blood stains on the floor. Frank told his fellow officer that he reminded Ed was at the store the previous day and then the next day when he brought antifreeze. Her receipt for the antifreeze was the last purchase that was written up by Bernice. That evening, Ed was arrested at the grocery store and cops obtained a search warrant for his property. When they arrived, they found Bernice's decapitated body in a shed on Gein's property, hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes at her wrist. The torso was quote-unquote dressed out like a deer. She had been shot by a 22 caliber rifle and mutilated after her death. Authorities continued searching the house and found whole human bones and fragments, a wastebasket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on Ed's bedpost, female skulls with some having the top sawn off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a female torso skinned from shoulder to waist, leggings made from a human leg skin, masks made from the skin of female heads, Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag, Mary Hogan's skull in a box, Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack, Bernice's heart in a plastic bag in front of Ed's pot belly stove, nine vulvae in a shoebox, a young girl's dress, and, quote, the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old, and quote, a belt made from female human nipples, four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face, and fingernails from female fingers. Gein told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he had made as many as 14 nighttime visits to three local graveyards and exhumed recently deceased buried bodies. He stated he was in a quote-unquote daze-like state when he was doing this. When he would come out of the daze at the graveyard, he would leave without robbing. 
However, if he remained in that state, he would look for middle-aged women that reminded him of his mother. He admitted to stealing from nine graves and took the police to their locations. Gein's account was largely corroborated when investigators went to those sites and saw evidence of the grave robbery. Gein stated his goal was to create a quote-unquote woman's suit so that, quote, he could become his mother and literally crawl into her skin, end quote. Police suspected he engaged in necrophilia, an accusation that Gein denied stating the bodies, quote-unquote, smelled too bad. In addition to the grave robberies, Gein admitted that he shot Mary Hogan in 1954. He later stated he had no memories of the details of her death. A 16-year-old told police that Gein had shrunken heads in his fridge, which he claimed were relics from the Philippines. It was later discovered that Gein had carefully peeled off skin of the corpse to make a mask. Due to his confessed crime, Gein was suspected in several other murders, including that of Evelyn Hartley. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Ed Gein? It's terrifying. It is something that would be straight out of a movie. It's hard to believe that someone was capable of this. I do think he had some type of mental illness. I think his mother had some type of mental illness too and was horribly abusive to him. And I would say is the reason that this happened. He was not able to grow and become, he didn't really have his own identity because of his mother. He couldn't be a normal kid. He didn't grow into a quote unquote normal adult because of that. And he went on to commit these crimes. I'm sure that isolation was really difficult for him. Like that author said, he was truly alone. He lived his life for his mother. And then all that was taken away. I'm sure he wanted, I'm by no means defending him. I do feel bad for his life, what he had to go through. I'm sure maybe he wanted some type of comfort and this is how he sought it out. Of course, it's not right. It's disgusting that these women's bodies were desecrated like this. And I can't even imagine what those responding officers, like, I can't imagine what it was like going into that house and seeing everything. It's so brutal, like you can't even put it into words. What do you think? I know that it becomes a trope of true crime and psychology in general to blame the mom, right? But in some of these cases, especially with Ed Gein, I think that is so warranted. She really created a worldview that demonized women and created a scenario in which he was psychologically dependent upon her to just feel like a normal person and to act like a normal person. I think that when they speak of the, you know, strange mannerisms that he had, I think that's because his mom never let him really figure out who he was as a person. And due to having no self-identity, he thought of, well, who do I actually want to be? And it was his mom. And because of that, not only were innocent lives taken, but he also desecrated the burial sites of other people. I do believe him when he says he didn't engage in any necrophilia. I think because his ultimate goal was to become his mom, I don't think that he would have engaged in necrophilia with the body. It doesn't make much sense. I do hope that 
after all this time and because he was sentenced that hopefully they have some solace in knowing that an evil person wasn't able to continue on with his crimes. Hopefully we get more information about the identities of everyone that he could have killed. But at this point, that's highly unlikely because of the time frame of his crimes. We did want to add that Ed Gein uh, died on July 26, 1984, at the age of 77, in the Madota Mental Health Institute for respiratory failure resulting from lung cancer. After he was found guilty for the murder of Wharton, he was found legally insane and remanded to a psychiatric institute. So just wanted to add that information as well. As we said in the intro, Ed Gein served as the inspiration for many horror movie villains. This genre of movie has been around for over 100 years and has had a significant impact on culture both on and off the big screen. The Dictionary of Film Studies defines the horror movie as representing, quote, disturbing and dark subject matter, seeking to elicit responses of fear, terror, disgust, shock, suspense, and of course, horror from their viewers, end quote. Early inspirations from before the development of film include folklore, religious beliefs, and superstitions of different cultures, and the gothic and horror literature of authors such as Edgar Allan Poe, Bram Stoker, and Mary Shelley. Horror became a codified genre after the release of Dracula in 1931. Many subgenres emerged in subsequent decades. Body horror films focus on the process of bodily transformation. In these films, the body is either engulfed by some larger process or heading towards fragmentation and collapse. Examples of body horror are Thing of 1982 and The Fly of 1986. Folk horror uses elements of folklore or other religious and cultural beliefs to instill fear in audiences. Folk horror films have featured rural settings and themes of isolation, religion, and nature. Frequently cited examples include Witchfinder General of 1968, The Blood on Satan's Claw, 1971, The Wicker Man of 1973, The Witch of 2015, and The Somber of 2019. The found footage horror technique gives the audience a first-person view of the events on screen. It presents the footage as being discovered after. Horror movies, which are framed as being made up of found footage, merge from the experience of the audience and characters, which may induce suspense, shock, and bafflement. The most successful of this horror type are the Paranormal Activity movie franchise. In their book, Gothic Film, Richard R. McRoy and Richard J. Hand stated that quote-unquote gothic can be argued as a very loose subgenre of horror, but argued that gothic as a whole was a style like film noir and not bound to certain cinematic elements like the Western or science fiction film. The genre can be applied to films as early as The Haunted Castle from 1896, Frankenstein from 1910, as well as to more complex iterations such as Park Chan Wook's Stoker in 2013 and Jordan Peele's Get Out in 2017. Also described as quote unquote eco horror, the natural horror film is a subgenre, quote, featuring nature running amok in the form of mutated beasts 
carnivorous insects and normally harmless animals or plants turned into cold-blooded killers, end quote. Night of the lepus, frogs, bug, squirm, and jaws are within this category of horror. The slasher film is a horror subgenre which involves a killer murdering a group of people, usually teenagers, usually by use of bladed tools. In his book on the genre, author Adam Rockoff wrote that these villains represented a quote-unquote rogue genre of film with, quote, tough, problematic, and fiercely individualistic, quote, end quote. Halloween, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Nightmare on Elm Street are some of the best-known examples of this horror type. Supernatural horror films integrate supernatural elements, such as the afterlife, spirit possession, and religion into the horror genre. Examples include The Exorcist and Poltergeist. Teen horror is a horror subgenre that victimizes teenagers while usually promoting strong anti-conformity teenage leads, appealing to young generations. This subgenre often depicts themes of sex, underage drinking, and gore. I Know What You Did Last Summer, Donnie Darko, and Crazy Beautiful are examples within this subtype. And then we have black exploitation, a genre of horror films involving mostly black actors. In 1972, director William Crane made the first black exploitation horror film, Blackula. Psychological horror is a subgenre of horror and psychological fiction with a particular focus on mental, emotional, and psychological states to frighten, disturb, or unsettle its audience. This subgenre frequently overlaps with related subgenres of psychological thriller and often uses mystery elements and characters with unstable, unreliable, or disturbed psychological states to enhance the suspense, drama, action, and paranoia of the setting and plot and to provide an overall unpleasant, unsettling, or disturbing atmosphere. Rosemary's Baby of 1968, The Shining of 1980, The Silence of the Lambs of 1991, Black Swan of 2010, and Heredity of 2018 are some of the best-known examples. The horror genre has been produced worldwide, varying in content and styles between regions. Despite being the subject of social and legal controversy due to their subject matter, some horror film and franchises have seen major commercial success influence society and spawn several popular cultural icons. In a study by Jacob Sheldon, the many ways that audience members are manipulated through horror films was investigated in detail. Negative space is one such method that can play a part in inducing a reaction, causing one's eyes to remotely rest on anything in frame, a wall, or an empty black void in the shadows. Mirrors are often used to create a sense of tension in horror movies. The jump scare is a horror movie trope where an abrupt change in image accompanied with a loud sound intends to surprise the viewer. This can also be subverted to create tension where an audience may feel more unease and discomfort by anticipating a jump scare. In Music and Horror Films of 2010, Leonard writes, quote, music and horror films frequently make us feel threatened and uncomfortable, end quote, and intends to intensify the atmosphere created in imagery and themes. Dissonance, autonomy, and experiments with timbre are typical characteristics used by composers in horror 
film music. Before we get into the themes and drawbacks of horror as a genre, Jenny, what are your thoughts on horror movies and do you have a favorite subtype? I like horror movies. I mentioned this before. I was like a big Freddy cat growing up and now I do really like scary movies. I think I lean towards psychological horror. I do really like Rosemary's Baby that we mentioned. Scream is my favorite scary movie. We also have an episode about horror movies that were inspired by true crime. And we did talk about the inspiration behind Scream, if you'd like to learn more about that. Otherwise, I like the supernatural horror. Poltergeist is another one of my favorites. And I do like the folk horror. I think that can be very unsettling. I'm not a a body horror person. That tends to just like gross me out too much. Of course, it does what it's meant to do, which is scare me. And I'm also not really into the eco horror in the sense of like monsters and like big scary animals. Honestly, I find myself rooting for like the monster <laughs> in, a, in some of those movies, just my personality. But I do really like them and I do love learning about film like this. I was a film criticism minor. So it's something I've always enjoyed and just like hearing about. What about you? Yeah, definitely psychological horror is at the top of my list. I like films where there's different elements that get brought in. And I feel like psychological horror does a great job of following some of the tropes that you look forward to in a horror movie, but also bringing in those surprise elements. I feel like those movies typically have the best twist endings to them as well. I also love slasher films. Definitely, I would say Halloween is likely my favorite type of slasher slash uh, horror film. And I agree that I really don't like animal-related horror movies. It always feels weird to me. And you get like the uncanny valley type thing that's really disturbing, but not in a good way where I'm like, oh, okay, this is creeping me out, but I want to watch more of this. It's more like, a, oh, I want to turn this off. I think the only kind of cutaway, which may be related is like the human centipede, but that's also not really scary and could be put more into like psychological horror than anything else. But what I like about horror is no matter what, your favorite subtype is. There's always something for everyone. There are definitely horror movies that are less scary. You have like comedy horror movies that are coming out, like the scary movies, which are really funny and technically are a type of horror movie. And you have ones that are more historical, which just explore kind of like the dark sides of a country's history and some of the events that have happened. So definitely horror is one of those things where, as we're going to talk about, it might have a bad reputation, but I love it for what it is. In the book, Dark Dreams, author Charles Derry conceived horror films as focusing on three broad themes, the horror of personality, horror of Armageddon, and the horror of the demonic. The horror of personality derives from monsters being at the center of the plot, such as Frankenstein's monster, whose psychology makes them perform unspeakable horrific acts, ranging from rapes, mutilations, and sadistic killings. Other key works of this form are Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which features psychotic murderers without the makeup of a monster. 
The last group of the quote-unquote fear of the demonic features graphic accounts of satanic rites, witchcraft, exorcisms outside traditional forms of worship, as seen in films like 1973's The Exorcist or 1976's The Omen. There has been criticism towards horror as a genre. Critics have also commented on the representation of women and disability in horror films, as well as the prevalence of racial stereotypes. According to Valerie in her breakdown of the development of Black characters in horror, Black characters stand a greater chance of survival if they are teamed with a white woman by the end, if the entire cast is Black, or if the villain is a Black person. However, Complex also reveals that Black characters who survive the film almost certainly die if there is a sequel. Minority characters also notably have a lack of character development, especially in comparison to white counterparts. Much of the attention that minorities get within horror films is through the use of their culture as plot devices and structures to scare or guilt the white protagonists. References to such things as the quote-unquote Indian burial ground or the quote-unquote medicine man are commonly used in the horror genre to create a stereotype of quote-unquote the other and frighten white audiences. Some commentary has suggested that horror films have been underrepresented or underappreciated as serious works worthy of film criticism and major film awards. As of 2021, only six horror movies have been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, with The Silence of the Lambs being the sole winner. Many horror films have been the subject of moral panic, censorship, and legal controversy. In the United Kingdom, film censorship has frequently been applied to horror films. A moral panic over several slasher films in the 1980s led to many of them being banned, but released on videotapes, the phenomenon became properly termed, quote-unquote, video nasties. According to researchers, people may seek out horror films for all sorts of reasons, such as triggering chemicals in their brain to help them plan for the worst-case scenario or to practice coping strategies and control. According to Greco, jump scares can trigger fight or flight, which releases dopamine and endorphins. One benefit of watching scary movies is that it allows your brain to plan for these events if they were ever to happen. You may feel empowered to watch a true crime documentary or horror movie because you are in a safe environment where you can plan what you would do if you were ever in a similar situation. Similar to how people are given a free pass to do anything and everything illegal in any of the Purge movies, thrillers give you a chance to feed the taboo part of yourself that may otherwise deny for whatever moral reason. For instance, you might identify with the character beating up another character because it fulfills a base instinct in yourself and even because you agree with the reason behind it. Similar to how people... Jenny, what are your thoughts on the second part of looking at horror movies? I think really interesting to learn about like human psychology in relation to horror movies. And it does make sense that some people are, you know, more interested for various reasons. Some people aren't. And it definitely gives you, if you don't lead any kind of like dangerous life, maybe you think you have like a quote unquote boring life of some type. This is how you can get like a rush of endorphins, like an adrenaline rush, whatever. And like we said, it's kind of funny how 
it is a way for your brain to think about what you would do if something, if you were in this situation, because that is so many people do watch these movies like as a group and maybe like say things with their friends, like, Oh my God, don't go in there. Why are they doing that? I would never do that. Or like, go this way. And like, no, don't separate. You got to stay together. If you're in this kind of situation, it's funny how we place ourselves in the situations that we're seeing, you know, in our entertainment. What do you think? I agree. I think that, like you said, similar for any media, everyone has a different reason why they connect with horror movies. And yeah, I'm definitely someone when I'm watching it and I see a character do something that's so obviously detrimental to their survival. I'm kind of like screaming, like, why would you do that? No, turn around. No, don't go into the building. Like, you clearly saw how strong the killer was. Why do you think this wooden door is going to stop them? Get a weapon, you know, do something. So I definitely understand that. And I think one of the benefits of horror movie tropes is that they really add on to each other. So, you know, to expect certain things and, you know, when the other shoe is getting ready to drop. But a good horror movie will tie in the tropes with good twists. When it comes to the like coping mechanisms and control, I can definitely see that. I can see that also with like horror movie video games where you're able to really control both sides of the field, both the attacker and the victim. And I do think that it's probably a really good way to just let out tension, relieve stress. So there were several criticisms levied at horror movies. Do you think that they were fair? I do think so. I think everybody knows about the joke, like the black person's going to die first in these movies. And it's because that is what has happened in a lot of horror movies. It's not just, you know, something somebody made up. And if they die first, there is no real character development. And there is a lot of reliance on stereotypes. And yeah, the Indian burial ground, how many movies and shows have we heard that? And yeah, like the medicine man too, it really is like the othering, like we said, the other in a lot of contexts in horror movies. Definitely like women aren't well represented either. We see a lot of violence against women too. And disability So many horror movie villains have maybe some type of mental incapacity or have some kind of physical disability and they're like a monstrous creature because of that. Also with like mental illness too, like there's a crazed escaped killer on the loose. Like what are we going to do? And that goes back to like harmful stereotypes of people with different mental illness, which is not cool. But I also do agree that it is underappreciated because there is a lot of symbolism that can take place in horror movies. And I don't think the genre gets enough credit. We can go into this. This is a whole other topic. But how the Academy Awards, especially for Best Picture, is only looking for one type of movie. I think that's very much been the case until very recently where it's broadened its horizons a little bit. Because any movie can be beautifully made and done, acted, produced, written, whatever. And it doesn't have to be some sad period piece drama, which I would say is like a large stereotype of these best picture movies. And frankly, I don't think the general public is super interested in them. 
not to say like it needs to, these movies need to be pleasing for everyone, but I know the Oscars has struggled with getting people to watch. So I think if they did bring in some other more mainstream movies for recognition, more people would be interested, but that's a story for another day. As for like moral panic, I think it's kind of ridiculous. And that's a topic we've talked about many times. I will say though, like some people have gone on to be inspired by horror movies and then went on to kill people. I I don't think it's like a super common thing, but it is something that's happened. So I guess this fear isn't unwarranted, but I don't know. I understand people too, you know, if there's panic over people seeing just tons of violence and blood and being desensitized, like I can kind of support that, especially because I feel like for a while, I think of like the Saw movies, like some of these horror movies that were big were just like the grossest ways we can torture and kill people on screen. And that is definitely like I don't know if you can call it a subgenre. I guess it's kind of like body horror, just like what's the most brutal, gross thing we can show. And some people enjoy that. Yeah, it is like torture porn. And that's something I personally don't enjoy and don't understand why people would like, but there's a market for it. So I feel like that is more deserving of moral panic than like Freddy Krueger and like Jason. But what do you think? I agree with you. I think that similar to how we talked before about the satanic panic and the panic over video games in Japan and worldwide, I don't think that you can entirely blame a form of media for why someone decides to commit horrendous crimes. I think that more onus needs to be put on the individual and not on the media. When it comes to the other criticisms, such as the racial biases, the misogyny and ableism, you can definitely see that in all of these, not all of them, but a lot of horror movies. Although they have done studies where, you know, if you look at the specific, like, first to die thing, it was largely out of context right? However, sometimes, you know, you could have a character stay the whole movie, and it's basically like they die first, because you spent no time actually getting to know them, or the only time that they were shown on screen is when they were reaffirming different aggressive biases that people may have. So the only time you would show a black male character if you didn't kill him off first was if he was yelling or being the person that knows how to use a gun. Those different racial stereotypes. And I think both within the movies and the watcher of horror movies, women are seen in a negative view where either they have to be overly sexualized in a lot of these movies um you know it's also the trope of you know that a girl's gonna die soon if she has sex on screen you know that was made popular by like uh friday the 13th and you also have the scenario of like women can't figure out how to solve the problem on their own how to figure out 
how to win the game on their own, overcome whatever the demon or monster slasher is. And if they do try to figure out on their own, they're called a Mary Sue, which you would never do if it was a male lead. I mean, that role, you would never say, well, you know, this is a Dusek Machina for him to save the day. So there's definitely some biases when it comes to those different categories. Many criminals, Ed Gein included, have claimed to have little memory of their crime, including major details like dates and where a victim may be buried. While many disturbances are often associated with organic brain disease, crime-related amnesia raises the question of dissociation, a term that refers to the disruption of normally integrated functions of consciousness, memory, identity, or perception of the environment. Detachment is thought to arise from intense fear or trauma and has been defined as an altered state of consciousness involving a disconnection from one's sense of self or the external world. Dissociative amnesia may result when detachment interferes with the encoding and storage of traumatic information. Psychiatric accounts of crime-related dissociative amnesia propose that a dissociative state due to strong emotional stress is present during the commission of the offense. In this view, dissociation occurs and later memory retrieval is impaired by extreme levels of arousal accompanying crime-related behavior. Crime-related amnesia may occur due to the presence of psychotic episode. Psychosis is associated with increased prevalence of violent crime, including homicidal behavior. Taylor and Kobelman reported that 7 of 19 offenders who claimed amnesia for their violent crimes had a primary diagnosis of schizophrenia. A recent study of the psychiatric aspects of 118 cases of criminal homicide found that psychotic disorder, mainly paranoid schizophrenia, and alcohol intoxication accounted for the offenses of 24% of offenders who claimed amnesia for their crimes. Amnesia for crimes may also be associated with sleep disorders. There are several case reports of amnesia for violence, including homicide, committed in a state of sleepwalking or sleep terrors. The violent behavior typically follows an episode of partial arousal from early non-REM sleep, usually within two hours after sleep onset. Amnesia for an offense is commonly associated with excessive consumption of alcohol with or without concurrent use of other illicit or illicit drugs and may be classified as dissociative or an organic form of amnesia. Dissociative amnesia is associated with crimes that are committed in a state of extreme emotional arousal and in which the victim is known intimately by the offender. Frequently, the crime is unplanned and no motive is discernible. The incidence of amnesia claims increases with the severity of the violence. In a recent Canadian case, a nurse experienced a dissociative episode when an elderly bedridden patient yelled at her for accidentally spilling a bedpan. With her emotional trigger setting off her dissociative behavior, she did not recall using a metal table leg to strike repeatedly and kill the patient who died of severe brain injury. Offenders who claim amnesia for crimes are, on average, older and may have more prior convictions than those who claim crime-related dissociative amnesia often alert the police to their crime. 
they are less likely to deny the offense than those who do not claim amnesia. Another interpretation of crime-related amnesia acknowledges the likelihood that some offenders intentionally fabricate memory loss to avoid punishment for a crime or for other personal gain known as malingered amnesia. While an early study reported that 20% of the offenders claiming amnesia were fabricating the memory loss, it has been suggested that the rate of malingering is higher. The likelihood of malingered amnesia may be greater in offenders with antisocial personality disorder. It's been suggested that offenders with antisocial personality disorder may be prone to malingering amnesia for crimes in part because of the tendencies of manipulation, habitual deceit, and a general poverty in major affective reactions that categorize this disorder. Amnesia for serious offenses has important legal implications in the context of competency to stand trial and criminal responsibility. As per the competency standards set by Dusky versus the U.S., amnesia could render a defendant competent to stand trial because memory loss for the events would prevent him or her from having a reasonable degree of rational understanding and restrict his or her ability to assist counsel in the preparation of his or her defense. The issue of competency to stand trial was addressed in the famous case of Wilson v. U.S. Robert Wilson sustained a serious head injury in a motorcycle accident while allegedly attempting to escape from the scene of a robbery. When he regained consciousness three weeks later, Wilson reported that he had no recollection of events surrounding the offense. While an initial hearing concluded that Mr. Wilson was suffering organic amnesia and was incompetent, a second hearing found him competent to stand trial despite his continued reported inability to remember the relevant events of the crime. Wilson was subsequently tried and convicted. In that decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit, ruled that a lack of memory for an alleged offense does not automatically constitute incompetence. The U.S. Court of Appeals concluded that six factors should be addressed in evaluating the impact of amnesia on a defendant's ability to stand trial. These factors include the defendant's ability to consult with and assist his attorney, the extent to which the memory loss affected the defendant's ability to testify, and to reconstruct evidence extrinsically, the extent to which the government assisted in that reconstruction, the strength of the prosecution's case, and any other general factors relevant to this case. In the medical legal context, forensic psychiatrists examine individuals who have committed a homicide are required to offer an opinion on the mental state of the person at the time of the offense. Jenny, do you have any thoughts on amnesia and crime and how they interact with each other? I think it's really interesting. I don't know, like... I guess we do know a good amount of amnesia, but I definitely understand like from a trauma-based perspective that there are people that do just like, I don't know, I guess black out in a way something takes control of them, like we were saying, and they don't have any memory. I guess it is maybe sometimes difficult to tell who that actually happened to and who that didn't happen to because we do hear that a lot. But I thought that was kind of interesting that we had said that people that of a certain age that do experience this do often say like call the police and report the crime. I thought that was really interesting and maybe not something you would uh, usually expect. And I think as more people do start to understand trauma and how it affects the brain and the body, 
I think people will maybe be more understanding of this because I think this kind of falls in line with the insanity defense of people thinking it's ridiculous. What about you? I agree. I think that people, they like to automatically assume, well, you know, this person is just using this as an excuse to get off. And it's like, no, there are tests, there are medical tests that can be ran to, you know, show a lot of this. We didn't get into like the neuropsychology side of things, but there are brain scans that show a clear delineation in the memory of individuals that report amnesia and how that definitely disrupts their ability to create new memories. And I agree, it's like the insanity defense where, again, people are very quick to be dismissive of it. And while I agree that we need to make sure that victims are getting justice, we also need to make sure that we have a fair criminal justice system. And that includes making sure that defendants' rights are upheld, just like we would want our own rights upheld if we were in that situation. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Ed Gein. You can read more about this case and how to follow us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.